3: From KQED.
2: Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I describe myself as an in-between, writes Savala Nolan in her new book, Don't Let It Get You Down. In-between economic classes, racial and ethnic categories, painfully thin and truly fat. Nolan, who heads a law center at UC Berkeley, has written a searing, unsettling, beautiful set of investigations deep into her own mind, body, and personal history. This is a book about love and friendship and family and freedom and the deep discomforts that can exist within those simple words. Then, we'll preview the Berkeley Art Museum show New Time, Art and Feminisms in the 21st Century with curator Apsara DeQuinzio and Mills College Dean Catherine Wagner, whose work is featured in the exhibit. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In her debut memoir, Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body, Savala Nolan's 12 deeply personal essays probe unsettled territory in her own life. Rather than gloss over those moments of self-realization, Nolan provides an unflinching narration of her own discoveries about herself and her friends and experiencing the intersectional oppressions of being a self-described, big-bodied, mixed black woman. If it's hard to talk about, Nolan wants to go right at it. Bodies, her relationship with her white mother, her father's incarceration, ruptures and in friendships over racial ignorance, even some of her ancestors' enslavement of other human beings. It's a bit of a departure for Nolan, who trained as a lawyer and as the director of the Felton E. Henderson Center for Social Justice at Berkeley, but Nolan's book is a riveting, difficult work written with rhythm and artistry that reveals the breadth and depth of one person in one body acted on by so many of the structural for- forces that have forged this country. And she joins us today to talk about it all. Welcome to the show, Savala Nolan. Thank
1: you, Alexis. I am truly thrilled to be here.
2: Oh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. And I, I was thinking you could introduce yourself to the audience by just reading the, the very start of the book about in-betweenness.
1: Sure, I would be happy to. I call myself in-between. I'm a mixed black woman and what folks have sometimes called, quote, a whole lot of yellow wasted, meaning I have light yellow skin wasted by black features, kinky hair, broad nose. I'm Mexican on my dad's side, but I don't speak Spanish. I'm descended from enslaved people on my dad's side, but slaveholders on my mom's side. Their progeny disowned her and her future kids when she married a black man. I'm a daughter of the American Revolution. My mom completed graduate school, as did I. My dad didn't finish elementary school and spent nearly 20 years incarcerated. A few years here, a few years there. I started my first diet at age three or four and have been painfully thin and truly fat multiple times for 30 years, which is to say I know things about womanhood that you can't know if your body is normal or your weight hasn't fluctuated wildly. I'm a lawyer and in law school, I worked for the United States Attorney's Office and the Obama administration. And as a child, I watched my dad deal cocaine to pay child support. I went to Tony private schools and grew up in Marin County, which had the highest, which had the world's highest per capita income in those days. I also sometimes spent weekends with my dad, who was so poor. We went to the bathroom in buckets under a ceiling hole repaired with a tarp.
2: Well, thank you for that. What do you think? the in-betweenness that you identify in this passage, what does it let you do as a writer and a thinker?
1: Well, it lets me and requires me to um, view things as extremely complicated, right? It requires me to avoid simplification and, the easy categorization that our culture is so fond of, you know, I think when you grow up and live as I did and do um, with this sort of resume of polarities, you know, you have the gift of kind of extreme double consciousness, you know, to to borrow the phrase. And um, maybe, hopefully, you know, as a writer and as a thinker, you have the ability to be somewhat of a dual citizen and, and a translator between some of these poles in our culture that are so intractable and vexing um, and so dominant in our lives, You know, race, gender, the body, class, and so on. Um, and I, I, of course, can't explore the world from any vantage point but my own. Um, and so this book grows out of that complexity And um, the gift and also, you know, the requirement of having to engage with it because it's always rich, but, you know, it can be quite difficult to reckon with complexity in all of these different areas, too.
2: Yeah. And one of the things that I was really resonating with, and I think lots of people who came from less privileged backgrounds and then ended up, you know, in some fancy East Coast place, is just this this sense of the the uber wealth of the of the East and, and also the cultural cachet of sort of knowing all the fancy places you could vacation. And it seems like some of those early experiences of seeing sort of Manhattan wealth were really a, a major influence on you.
1: Yeah, they absolutely were. I, I first went to the East Coast um, in high school. I did basically a, an, a broad, quote unquote, program that took me to the East Coast and Um, Got to know some extremely wealthy people and sort of East Coast old money, which has a different feel to it than, you know, what we see on the West Coast. And I think I was simultaneously, you know, profoundly taken with it. I was really smitten with it and charmed by it. um, And it's very charming. (laughs) It's very, very charming. And I enjoyed the ease with which I could sort of swim in that water because I had gone to private schools and so I was familiar with you know, the basic contours of wealth and how people think and act when they're wealthy, you know, painting with a broad brush. But um, I was I was able to kind of dive in and swim in the water a little bit. And I loved that, but I was also profoundly aware of, man, just an, an uncrossable distance between who I was and this world that I was in. Um, and that distance of course existed because there is deep generational poverty in my family because at that time in my life i was fat and our culture you know right now the culture thinks of fatness as sort of the opposite of all the traits that go along with wealth like mastery and self-control um i was a woman you know which in a certain way sort of forced me out of the deepest circle of power um, in that group or in any group so there was a tension, right? I loved it. I was drawn to it. I was also profoundly aware of how um, deeply I didn't belong and how I would probably never belong, that the things that kept me out were probably insurmountable, right? Because there were things about my body and we can't escape our bodies. Yeah.
2: You know what? This book, though, doesn't only see you sort of considering the difficulties that can arise you know with people who are very different or very far away they can also happen closer to home and i was hoping we could hear one cut of a song and then i'm gonna have you tell a story okay So it's the very last line of this song that sort of becomes the occasion for your essay, Dear White Sister. And I was hoping that you could relate that story to us as a way of kind of thinking about the way that racial blind spots can really open rifts in a friendship.
1: Sure. So the song, Freedom, is from Beyonce's iconic Lemonade album, for those who didn't instantly recognize this. <laughs> um, Thank a you beautiful... for doing my
2: job. I appreciate that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Anytime. Um, It's a beautiful song, and it's a song that is deeply rooted in Black history and the ongoing struggle for freedom and uh, struggle for self-liberation and the ongoing um, drive to create our freedom no matter what the odds may be, right? That sentiment is reflected in the lyrics of the song. It's reflected in... Um, the video, the imagery, you know, that's used. And to be fair, if one doesn't know how to read the signs of the language of the song and the signs, the visual signs in the video, one might miss just how deeply fused this song is with Black culture and Black history and the Black freedom struggle, right? So that being said, um, The story I think you're hoping to hear involves a very good friend of mine, um, former friend sadly I have to say, but someone who I was very, very close with for years starting in high school. And uh, this friend posted on Instagram um, a screenshot of her um, rollerblading because she was getting into roller derby. And she captioned it, I'm gonna keep running because the winner don't quit on themselves freedom. So she captioned it using that last line, Alexis, that you sort of underlined for listeners. And um, I ran across the post on Instagram as one does and sort of three things happened in, in rapid succession um, that are still, still haunting. So the first thing that happened was I felt a profound sense of offense um, and almost despair, seeing the words of this hymn that Beyonce wrote for black people, for black struggle, for black women, being misused, meaning being plucked out of its history and its cultural resonance and sort of pasted onto a pretty banal and inconsequential thing, which is getting into roller derby. Like, if that's important to you, and that's something that's deeply meaningful to you, terrific. But it doesn't necessarily operate on the same scale as um, a hymn that's about Black freedom struggles in this country. So... I felt this profound sense of upset and despair at having seen something that belonged to me and that I loved so deeply being misused in this very casual way. The second thing that happened right after that um, was that I really, really struggled with whether I had a right to my own feelings about this offense and this despair and whether I was allowed to mention it to my friend who um, is white and who is progressive and someone who um, you know, is pretty savvy about race issues compared to many of my other friends. But nevertheless, I just knew that if I brought it up to her, there would be some sort of fallout and probably any listener of color will relate to that. Or frankly, any listener who's part of a marginalized community who's had to reckon with whether to bring up an offense to the people in power, right? Um, and so Sabal, that-
2: what's going to be, we're going to leave people with a cliffhanger for when oh, we come back okay. from the break about what happens when you did, in fact, confront your friend. We're talking with Savala Nolan, author of Don't Let It Get You Down, essays on race, gender, and the body. What are your questions for her and how have you addressed and coped with feelings of otherness in your own life. You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Savala Nolan, author of Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body, and she also directs the Center for Social Justice at UC Berkeley School of Law. We'd love your questions for her, and we'd also love to know how you've addressed or coped with feelings of otherness in your own life. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And you can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook, of course. We're at KQED Forum. Um, Before we went to the break, we were hearing about your story of of confronting a friend who had posted a Beyonce lyric onto her Instagram page, Uh, a white friend, and you can continue. (laughs)
1: of this story, you know, I saw the post and I felt this offense and this sadness, at seeing this really important part of my life and my culture misused cavalierly. And then, you know, act two was me wrestling with whether I had a right to speak up to this person, this white person, and potentially offend her. Um, And then, you know, act three, the cliffhanger is I did ultimately reach out and you know, because we had been friends for so long, I think that that we recognized that it was worth trying to work this out, and I think we both understood that an interracial relationship, you know, it has to be able to deal with these things, or or it perishes, or it becomes inauthentic. Um, but ultimately, we were not able to find our peace about this, um, and I can't I can't speak for her. You know, she has her own version of how this unfolded, no doubt, but. What I found was that um, a white fragility flared immediately you know upon me um, asking, suggesting, telling her that it was not an appropriate use of this beautiful song you know and and because of the historical context of the song um, and trying to help her see that ultimately um, you know what my, the way I read events is that, she, she was just a little too blinded by privilege and a little too um, sort of rocked by her own fragility to, to sort of see what I was trying to say and to feel what I was trying to say. And mm. ultimately the friendship, um, it dissolved, which is sad because I still love and respect this person. Um, however, if the trade-off I had to make was this friendship um, in exchange for my own authenticity and my own right to own what I know and feel and believe to be true. Um, it is a hard trade-off, but it is one that I ultimately am willing to make.
2: Yeah. You know, I think in reading this story, there's, there is an unsettled space in my own mind and I'll just, I'll just put it to you i mean some of the power of beyonce is that she not all of it is that she's commercially successful which requires reaching this largest possible audience and so i see and completely respect this as a song for black people and its bones but it also does become marketed and sold as a product for everyone so how is there a, is that a contradiction is there space to 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 push on that or or not
1: Yeah, there, there is a tension, I would say, I I wouldn't call it a contradiction. I would say there's tension there. It's absolutely true. You know, she, she sells her music to everybody and happily, right? Nevertheless, um, it is possible for human beings to love something without picking it up and using it as if it's theirs. And as if it doesn't belong to someone else. And if as if it isn't part of a history that isn't theirs, right? I mean, one of the things I get into in the book that is far less an indictment of my friend and more just uh, thinking about whiteness is um, this habit of whiteness to sort of see itself as central and see itself as entitled to whatever space it wants to be in um it's not just whiteness that that has that habit i mean any any privileged identity or group has this a habit of thinking about itself as central and as entitled to use whatever it wants to use on its own terms um but that's really problematic and i think that human beings can do a lot better than that and indeed we do do better than that when um You know, for instance, uh, there are plenty of habits of just politeness and social norms that we extend to people in power that we have trouble extending to people who aren't in power. And Ta-Nehisi Coates writes about, you know, the N-word and how um, we understand that, like, it's not necessarily to call someone who isn't your husband or wife, sweetie pie or baby doll because... (laughs) even if their Mm -hmm. partner calls them that, they have a different relationship to the word and to the person. Like we don't have access to it just because it's out there in the world. Um, But we have trouble extending that kind of rule of common courtesy and common sense to people who don't have power, right? Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, love the song, love the song, but don't use it, don't use it in a way that divorces it from its context and puts you at the center of it right mm-hmm. so there's a tension but i don't think it's that difficult attention to manage if we just think and feel our way through it
2: yeah no thank you for that yeah i i I want to give you the warrior's welcome that you w- wanted in the book for having survived a racialized pregnancy and, and childbirth, which we, we do know statistically uh, is much more likely to kill black women than, than white women. And I can attest that even just reading your account was, was harrowing. And I wanted to know, you know, how did you come to, to sort of process that experience, aside from the healing of just holding your, your baby Gemma?
1: Well, thank you for the warrior's welcome. I think a part of me will always be looking for it, right? Um, So I I appreciate you giving it to me today a little bit. Um, You know, I write in the book about the long and short of it, it's very long, but I'll make it short is that I, I had a lot of undiagnosed problems in my pregnancy that ultimately led me to deliver my daughter in the cardiac ICU and then be separated from her mm-hmm. after she was born mm-hmm. in in a pretty harrowing way. I mean, not alone is harrowing, but, you know, the details are, are very difficult. Um, you know, how have I come to heal from it? Like any day now, <laughs> you know, um, I think part of it, unfortunately, is having practice as a woman and as a black person and as a fat person, you know, I have some neural pathways that are very well-worn that help me metabolize um, being wronged, being dismissed, being harmed. And um, so there was a way in which as a first time mother, you know, this experience was new and shocking, but as a person who moves through the world in my body, Um, It wasn't shocking, you know, I knew what was going on, even though I did not feel able to say, I think you're ignoring this because I'm Black and maybe because I'm fat. Um, I wasn't able to articulate that at any point in the pregnancy, but I knew that that was at play. You know, I think another thing that helped me and is helping me heal is that, you know, as you mentioned, Alexis, there's data now, there's data that backs up. What so many Black women know, which is that um, there is bias against us. The systems are not set up to support and ensure and boost our well-being. We're not trusted to articulate and describe our own experiences. We're often dismissed, and you know, at our peril with to, to lethal consequences. So, having some data for better and worse lets people take me seriously, frankly, mm-hmm. and being believed is really helpful when you're trying to heal and, and, and dress a wound, right? Someone has to be able to say, yeah, I see that wound. It's not in your head. So having the data has helped tremendously. And then of course, you know, the passage of time and writing about it too, and going through, um, you know, this essay in the book that ultimately was published began as just sort of a stream of consciousness document on my computer when my daughter was only a few weeks old. Um, And then six years later became something that someone else could read and understand. So time and writing helped too. Yeah.
2: I want to bring Tatiana from Berkeley into our conversation. Tatiana, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you. It's funny because in 11 years of listening, I've never called in. And now that's twice in two weeks that I've called in. (laughs) So that speaks to how your um, subjects are resonating with me. Um, But um, thank you so much for for this conversation. I'm a white present. I mean, I think white presenting um, woman who grew up. I'm I I identify as brown, but I think I sometimes present as white. My grandfather, my biological grandfather was black. He was one of the co-founders of the black civil rights movement in Brazil. And, you know, I grew up with brown, a brown mom. My dad is white, but all of my mom's other children, even my sister who's adopted, have biological fathers who are black. And so I was Um, you know, it's kind of like that movie, The Jerk with Steve Martin, you know, it was like me and it was like my mom even said later in life, she was like, you came out and you were too white. And I was like, that's not helpful. Um, And um, so I have been othered by family members, um, but it's been really interesting just as a journey this last year and a half trying to figure out where I fit in. I mean, I've basically yeah. spent my lifetime trying to figure out where I fit in. Um, <laughs> but this notion of, you know, otherness is really yeah. interesting. Yeah, Tatiana, I thank like... you for yeah. everything you write.
2: <laughs> yeah. I was about to say this book is a good starting place. Well, what would you say? Shavala Nolan?
1: Well, I would say I relate Tatiana. I mean, my whole life, has also been um, a search to belong, right? I wrote this book in some ways as as a way of documenting and and maybe trying to correct my own dislocation in the culture and people who are mixed, you know, racially. Like in many ways, in this culture that is so obsessed with race, um, we're kind of ground zero for that that sense of dislocation and. You know, there is often a tension between what you look like and who you feel you are. Um, and in that tension, you know, there can be a lot of pain, a lot of confusion. Ultimately, you know, one hopes there's also some peace and some richness and some sort of multivalent or multilingual, you um, you know, spark that that you carry too. But I I totally relate to having had family um, stressed out that I seemed too white, you know, whatever that means at certain Mm -hmm. points in in my life. Um, And I think, you know, we are so wedded as a culture to our racial hierarchy, um, which depends on strict categories. And I think it's often unconscious, you know, how wedded we are, and, and it's often systemic more than things, something that resides in people's minds, you know, in a conscious way. But we're so wedded to it um, that it's, you know, it's really the architecture of the entire building that we live in as a culture. And so people like us who defy categorization or who complicate cat- categorization. Um, you know, we're disruptive, right? And people respond to disruption sometimes with anxiety. Um, The difficulty for us is to not take in that anxiety, right? To not make it our life's work to try and prevent other people from being anxious about who we are. And I want to recommend, Tatiana, if you haven't already seen this, there's a wonderful document by a scholar named Maria Root, like uh, the root of the problem. I believe it's called the Bill of Rights for Racially Mixed People. If you Google some variation on that phrase <laughs> with Maria Root, you'll find it. Um, and it's it's all about what we're talking about and what kind of your rights are towards self-definition as a person who is in between.
2: So with our last minutes together, I want to talk about your satin bomber jacket. Um, you, write, you write in the book, the garment, which I used as a measuring stick, as a goal, as punishment, didn't exactly spark joy, but it was pure potential, each thread glowing with the promise of past and future thinness. And honestly, I have one of these garments. I think lots of people have one of these garments. And I, I want you to tell the story of that uh, bomber jacket with our last minute here.
1: Yeah, I think everyone has a bomber jacket too. Uh, this story has resonated with folks and in a way that tells me, you know, most people have at least one bomber jacket. So I went on my first diet when I was about four years old. I should say I was put on it, right? Cause I didn't consent. Um, and, and then throughout my life, I sort of ping ponged between subclinical eating disorder and, you know, for which I received a lot of praise and had a thin body and then having a fat body because that's not sustainable. I had this satin little bomber jacket that I, I found, and I wore in my thinnest year ever. Uh, that was a painfully thin year, but I loved this jacket because, uh, it seemed to encapsulate all the progress that I made toward complying with the thin beauty norms, you know, that dictated my sense of myself. And, uh, I wore it for about a year and then I started to gain weight again because no one can subsist on the amount of calories that I was eating. And um, I carried this jacket with me, you know, like literally across the world. I probably moved like 10 times when I couldn't even wear this jacket, but I kept it in my closet and I would periodically try it on to sort of see how I was doing. Was I doing okay? Was I not doing okay? Did I need to sort of clamp down and control? Was that what I was eating more? Or was I thin enough that I was allowed to feel peace and freedom because the jacket fit or was loose? And um, it wasn't until, gosh, I was in law school. So I was in my very late twenties that I finally let this instrument of torture go Um, and began to understand that, you know, anti-fat pious is made up. It's not a natural law, right? It's just another example of the hierarchy that we live under that doesn't have to exist, and um, that my body was fine, whether it was thin or fat. And um, through a lot of work, which we don't have time to get into, you know, I was able to let go of dieting and just be who I am in the world. And that is someone who no longer owns that torture device, uh, satin bomber jacket.
2: (laughs) And so the lesson is throw out your bomber jacket. Is that right?
1: Throw out your bomber jacket and divest from the project of constantly renovating your body. I mean, you know, think of a house. When you're renovating a house, you can't hang out in it right, it sucks, you're not comfortable in a house that is constantly under renovation. It's the same with our bodies, like if you're constantly engaged in this deep project of trying to correct, reform, control what you look like, how can you possibly enjoy the body that you were given, which is the only vehicle you really have to experience life, you know? So um, let go of the renovation project, you're fine as you are.
2: (laughs) Um, I, Very last, uh, very, very last thing. If you could give someone one other book to read um, aside from your own that would deal with some of these same issues, what, what would it be?
1: It would be Aftershocks by Nadia Awusu, and full disclosure, she blurbed my book and she was on my book tour with me. So, you know, this is someone I have a personal connection to, but she, she too is a Brown woman who has experienced a lot of dislocation because of, you know, this and that in her background. And she writes about it beautifully and from an international vantage point because that's her story. So it's, it's like mine, but also has um, some different threads and different flavors than mine.
2: We've been talking with Savala Nolan, author of Don't Let It Get You Down, Essays on Race, Gender, and the Body. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Thank you, Alexis. This has been so much fun.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more Forum after the break.